0: vocal fam happy new year hello oh my goodness
1: yeah is this our first one in the
0: new sarah year? it's 2023 wow ah, yeah. where has time gone uh, we have new friends and old friends with us Indeed. sarah and i are welcoming um our graduate student and graduate assistant um liz cox with Ooh. us on the podcast this spring say hi liz hello Um, This is Liz's first time with us, and will be with us uh, for for most of the spring semester um, as a guest host. And we are welcoming back our old friend, Dr. Ian Howell. Say hi, Ian.
2: Hello, friends.
0: Um, It's been a while since Ian's been on. I can't actually remember the exact last time he was with us. It may have been back to the whole Now You're a Voice Teacher series that he did the episode with Yvonne.
2: I think it was, yep. Wow. So, Ian, reintroduce yourself to the vocal fam. Hello friends, my name is Ian Howell. Um, I currently live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I recently uh, began phasing out the work that I was doing at the New England Conservatory of Music where I was on their voice faculty. I also um, basically for the last decade directed their vocal pedagogy program and um, built up and then Uh, managed and mentored research in uh, the Voice and Sound Analysis Laboratory, which is a a biometric analysis lab. Um, So I'm currently remotely teaching out my current graduate students at the New England Conservatory, so I'm going to get them over the finish line with their research projects, get them through their degrees. Um, I'm working part-time at the Cleveland Institute of Music doing like fundamentally like artistic and expressive singing training, which is something that I've always done and it's it's interesting to sort of return uh, a little bit with a little bit more force and formality i guess to that part of who i am as a, as a performer i think most people out there in your podcast world who have come across my name imagine that i like you know show up to a performance with my TI-88 or something <laughs> and, and like actually, actually I think all of this is in service of of like that, <laughs> that
0: that's a calculator friends if you that, remember yeah. TI-88s yeah,
2: graphic calculator from for your high school SATs in the yeah exactly um but actually all like everything that I think about everything that I've written about or worked towards is in service of creating you know passionate and moving music for people who live in a a world of hurt, right? And so it's it's really great to be putting energy towards that as well. Um, And I've also started a a new uh, consulting, advising and professional development and education company that's called the Embodied Music Lab. Anybody who is interested, if I can self-plug. Um, check out embodiedmusiclab.com or just if you google embodied music lab you'll find the website there's a little place you can sign up and join my email list Um, and uh, you know that that is going to be a venue for continuing at a a high level a lot of the, the sort of research and knowledge creation and inquiry that was going on in the program at New England Conservatory except not you know, behind that most beautiful of garden walls, which is the admission process for a conservatory. Um, beautiful. And, uh, of so beautiful. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm working with a number of schools already, even just in this past couple of months to put together their own grant proposals to build what I would call an embodied music lab, which is like a, a biometric or performance analysis lab, which I think to be housed within a music school is exactly the place to put it because you, you need a Nick you know this right it's like you're sitting in the room where this is true at your school it's like you you need a, a space where students can come in at 11:30 at night and just like mess around like it's a sandbox or a playground like that's how you learn how to use biometric analysis equipment that's how you learn um, how this stuff can be. Uh, that's just meaningful in the lives of your students in cultivating their functional imaginations in changing the way that they see the world and I, I think you know not to not to overgild the lily, but you know to to recognize that they have something to say about how it is that we analyze, understand the voice, and then create frameworks and new paradigms based on that understanding that allow us to like distill information and communicate to other people. Um, so I'm also doing advising and consulting and working with people who would like to build some version of you know what I think was fairly miraculous that we were able to build it at New England Conservatory over the last decade. Um, so that's me. I live yeah. in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go Blue.
0: That is the um, that is the <laughs> longest cold open ever, and I want to play the theme and I want to play the theme song now because it's the lie that's going to lead us into our conversation.
2: You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy and pop culture. Coming to you from the third formant, everyone's favorite buzz song.
0: Uh, remember, remember two thousand and eight when things were so simple.
2: I mean it is, but it's um, also other stuff is the problem. <laughs>
0: uh, I remember a conversation that Ian and I had over text message in 2018. Dun, dun, dun. And, and he posed a question to me that no one had ever asked me before. For vocal fam, it, it, it's been a while since we've talked about any of this junk. Um, uh, if you don't know already, I, I was a mentee of the late, great Dr. Donald Miller. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. Um, And uh, that's how I came to know and understand voice acoustics. Um, Very much entrenched in a harmonic format, steady state based model. Uh, Definitely an expert in, uh, as we call it, second format tuning. Aye. Um, And uh, could tell you all about it. It was a root part of my dissertation. Anyway. Ian And Ian himself has also published many papers, including his dissertation, including terminology like harm, <laughs> harmonics and formants ad nauseum,
2: right? Got to work with the tools you got, man.
0: We have both published and talked about these tools and materials for many, many years. And I remember a conversation in 2018 when Ian said to me, Did Don ever teach you to analyze the waveform? And do you know what it means? And I went,
2: no, should I care? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, I said, I don't know yet.
0: (laughs) I think that's where you were at this point because it was like September.
2: Yeah. Um, You know what's interesting even about that story that you just told about your past is you said, I was working with Don and I was in the world of harmonics and formants and steady state models. But it's like, at the time, you didn't know it was the steady state model. Right. Right? It was like, so you're even revising your, your own history at this point. Or, or you're invoking a term that we know, but that your listeners, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a blip. They did not even register what you just said. Right. Amazing. It might, have, might as well have been in a foreign language. Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what made you start thinking about any of this?
2: Can we give the the friends at home a big context? Yes. Even what it is we're talking to a little less inside baseball, I guess. Please. Um, Probably everyone who listens to this podcast is aware that Nat's just put out a large... um, Nat's just put out a a curriculum, right? A a set of syllabi for... I had a heavy hand in it. Yeah, I I know your eyes twitching. I see it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: <laughs> flashbacks
2: yeah and so i was i was talking with i was talking with a, a colleague about this and you know one, one of the premises of this this curriculum is is there's like three big buckets of information and you know it's, it's not that this curriculum is about info dump versus sort of embodying, see what I did there with the plug? Embodying mm-hmm. oh, the information in your body, right? Oh, not that it's geez. not about manifesting it and making it real in the singers, but you know, at, at a certain point it is like, well, we just got to talk about this thing before we can imagine we've affected change in a singer in a way that's related to it. Three big buckets. And those three big buckets are like anatomy and physiology, acoustics and cognition. A lot of stuff goes in each of those buckets, right? A lot of stuff goes into a cognition, a lot of stuff goes into a and A lot of stuff should go into acoustics, I would argue. Um, and i was talking to a colleague brilliant like published they know a lot of stuff and and teach a lot and they were basically like yeah but the acoustics part really just still doesn't make sense right and so i was like i was confronted with this person i respect them and and love their mind and and my reaction like i snapped and so like i that night i went and wrote this document um, that I gave to y'all and you know, we'll sort of talk. Yes, yeah, so we have a bit.
0: lovely paper that Ian has written
2: only 32 pages long um, Only but, 32. But, yeah, okay. but it's like it's an essay and I'm gonna work on getting it published and it's related to what we're gonna talk about today which is essentially like what are what are the models we use to teach voice acoustics and why do we use those models? Like, have we ever asked the question why we use the models we use to teach uh, voice acoustics and the way we teach voice acoustics, but it se- it seemed to me at the time that what we have from a and p, what we have from anatomy and physiology, at least in the way that that info is like like disseminated in our culture, is like there's a there's a what there's like, oh, okay, I rock my thyroid cartilage or I." lengthen my vocal, my vocal folds get longer and my vocal contact surface is deeper or something about, you know, do I rigidly fix my rib cage and then try to breathe into it or does my rib cage attain a noble posture as a part of the inhalatory gesture. It's like, it's like with a and I think a lot of people who engage that material, it's like, well, there's the what, like, I don't want your body to be stiff, but there's also the, the why and how. Right. I know how, I know how to make your body not stiff and I know why it matters. And I, and I can sort of mentally make a series of links between what the body is doing and the resulting sound. And I think for a lot of the cognition stuff, like even if we just drill down to, you know, probably the the pop version of it right now in our culture, which is motor learning theory is like, you have a sense that there's a way that you could pace things in a lesson that respects the way that students can receive information and even if you don't know it's like well this part of the brain instead of two millimeters higher part of the brain is the reason why like you get a sense you can make a connection between the what which is how your behavior should be and the why and the how which is how you use that information to affect change and I was like this person is missing the why and how of acoustics. This right. person doesn't understand why it should matter what harmonic does X, Y, or Z. And, and as a result of that, like they, they can't confront the material.
0: And if I may, in your essay, you make a point fairly early on where you basically pose an important question, a, a statement followed kind of by a question, which is, and, and any of you listeners who have ever taken a voice pedagogy class, I think the likelihood that you have encountered the terms harmonic and formant is very high, and you state that in the essay. Yeah, you know, like like y- I can't think of practically any voice pedagogy class in 2023 that you wouldn't at least encounter those two terms. But then you are you are confronted with how are harmonics made? Yeah, and how even better? yet, this is how I posed it to Liz's class in the fall. Better yet, how does an organic body make a perfect numeric integer sequence of sign tones? Yeah.
2: I can't do anything perfect. I can't even fold my laundry perfectly. <laughs> and and so how would we expect human anyway? No, um, it's it's this is the question, right? Right. And and, and we, we spend all this time. I mean, this is really this is really where I'm coming from with this from a teaching model perspective, Nick, is like this is not an abstract question right this this is not an abstract question that's like well we could talk about voice production in this way or we could talk about it in this we're taking tuition dollars right there there are literal minutes and hours that are chunked set aside in coursework and we are currently using that time to be like like okay Liz you're my student Liz, I need you to memorize the harmonic series. Liz, I need you to memorize the first formant and second formant locations of you know these Italianator or German vowels or whatnot, right? Okay, good. Or speech sounds as they sp- are in actually most of our voice pedagogy literature. Yeah, I I, I just think we're taking time to do that. And, right. And then we say, okay, now that you know that base information, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna tell you that your second harmonic is coupled with your whatever resonance, that your second harmonic is coupled with your third resonance, or with your second resonance, or with your first resonance, right? And we say, look, see, there's that pattern. Your second harmonic is aligned with your first resonance. You can see it on a spectrogram, and then we start assigning experiential, like things we really observe from real singing, we start saying that's the second harmonic first resonance, right? Well,
0: we we, we immediately punt it to, to two things, I think. And you say this, we punt it to the experience or we punt it to what our singer experience is based on the averaging we are seeing on a spectrogram.
2: Yeah. And that's really where this goes is like, what is the visual language of a spectrogram? What generated that language. And it it is a language. We, we think that we're looking at a spectrogram and that it is showing us reality, that it is showing us what's actually happening in the air. And and actually it's not. Like you you It's you are...
0: definitely what I was presented with as I was
2: learning this material. Well, and I, I think you would probably agree with this, Nick. It, even if nobody said Yep, there is your 11th harmonic and it is persistent energy that is just continually oscillating in there even if nobody said that they implied it like they they left the question open and and so i I, i'm a firm believer in this idea and this is something we talked about a lot at the conservatory um this idea that you need to have a functional imagination not an imagination that functions, but like you, your imagination has to be able to reason through what is happening in a singer's body. Um, because most of the time, like, yeah, it's great, let's record Pavarotti or 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 take recordings of Caruso or like look what Renee Fleming is doing or Susan Graham or whatever. Yeah, that's great. It's like most of the people we encounter don't sing like that most of the people we encounter have got issues that they're trying to overcome and so like your functional imagination has to be able to interface with the sound the singer is making in front of you and you have to say in the fullness of this singer's coordination what would they sound like and what is currently missing from the sound that they are making and so this is where the why and how of these models comes in because if, if we if we go through what is currently considered like standard voice acoustics curricula for a voice pedagogy class, you are going to leave that class imagining that the voice is producing continuous energy at integer multiples of whatever the pitch it is that you're hearing. In other words, a fundamental and its subsequent overtones or harmonics. Exactly right. And you know what that means? That means that your functional imagination considers the vocal tract to be a place with some sort of series of shapes that receive harmonics.
0: Well, and you know what's interesting about that? I wanna say two things about what you just said. I wanna come back to the idea of describing the different, what was lacking in a voice. But Mm. before I do that, what you just said, I was actually encountered, asked to review a book manuscript last year by a major voice publishing house that I rejected um, because it literally talked about the parts of the vocal tract where those resonances were produced. Jeez, Louise.
1: Like specific locations.
0: Physical locations. Like
1: I can point to here and go.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: And it had charts of them.
2: You know, the I pictures. I, my best guess would be that that person read about perturbation theory, which yes. is like you know where parts of the vocal tract become. Uh, you know, you'd say their cross-sectional diameter diminishes, like they they become narrower. Um, And we can associate those perturbations with changes either up or down in the radiated resonances, the radiated formants from that vocal tract. Um, but that that's another example. It's like people overextend the conclusions of something like perturbation theory.
0: Well, but so the other point that you just made, I think, is something we all end up training our teachers to do, which is we're encountered with a singer and we have to imagine what the fullness of their sound might be whatever style they're singing in, yeah. you know, whatever, with what we're presented with, which is not full coordination.
2: Yeah.
0: And if we, even if we're viewing that from resonance perspectives, so often we even in voice pedagogy classes introduce the terms harmonic and format, but then when we take that next step, we stop and we say, well, it's lacking twang. Well, it's Mm -hmm. lacking depth. Well, it's lacking core. Well, it's... You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Rather than even actually having the functional awareness of describing the fact that it did not allow the first vocal tract resonance to pass within the octave, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, You know... Hold on. I'm going to save part one here. Um... So even within that, I mean, so, all right, just to bring this to the vocal fam here for some clarity and and, and we're going to let you talk about it. The thing is what we've been presented is also not a lie.
2: Yeah. Not really. No, it's the end of a process.
0: It's the end of a process. Yeah. which in and of itself partially led to why we had confusion about the terms format and resonance in the first place. I mean, we still do. And we still do. So you started digging
2: through some history. Oh yeah. Well, so let okay, Sorry, can I jump off? Please. Okay. Um so I was at the voice found uh 2017 I I had I had a master's degree student at the conservatory named Kayla Gotro, um, who uh, then became my colleague on the faculty. At friend New of the podcast, been on many podcast. times. Indeed, indeed. Um, who then joined me on the faculty at New England Conservatory, and she, and she's now on uh, both Boston Conservatory's faculty, teaching and Ber- and research methods. Yeah, for voice ped students, and also teaching artistic voice for Berklee College of Music. She's doing good. Yep. Um, she started getting interested in um, questions about like, well, what, what, is, what does the waveform show us, right? Cause you know, if you have Voce Vista Video Pro, everyone looks down into the left and over to the right at the power spectrum or the spectrogram and the power spectrum images respectively. And like, nobody looks up into the left at the waveform and in fact we're so zoomed out to see the time duration that we want that the waveform just looks like it might as well be a block of cheese right because it's just like some signals top to bottom and that's it um there's a lot of of cheese my gag gift for christmas was like a cheese storage thing for the fridge so it's amazing yep um and but there's like a lot of variation of the, the pressure information inside that waveform that is relevant, that is not captured by a super zoomed out view where you really only see a mush of the, the highest pressure and lowest pressure measurements. <coughs> so she, she and I started like exploring this and asking these questions. I, I presented a paper at the Voice Foundation in 2018, I think, and uh, Julian Chen and Don Miller were presenting a paper there as well, which turned into pitch synchronous analysis of speech which is uh, an article that was published in uh, Journal of Voice, a preprint. You can find the PDF online in 2019. The semester that Sarah graduated. I Ugh. showed it to her the semester remember, she graduated.
1: I actually thought about that. I was telling Jamie about that last night. I was like, for me, this all goes back to when one day I walked in and he goes, but Sarah what if
2: harmonics just don't exist? Yeah, so that's the question, right? And and so they, they presented this this paper. And then and, she had a
0: panic attack, And it, sorry, anyway.
2: Well, I think we all had panic attacks.
0: Yep, and all of us, all
2: and of us. It was like, this
1: is the final semester, I was like, look, I'm just starting to get this. Yeah. So and then just went.
2: We're gonna come back to that because I think a sense of success at our sunk cost in terms of investing time to understand yeah. the model of harmonics and resonances and formants, the sunk cost can actually prevent us from expanding our imagination. Like that, that's a really interesting thing. But a colleague came out of this session. I didn't see the session, unfortunately. A colleague came out of the session that Chen and, and Miller gave. And they basically like looked at me in the mm-hmm. lobby and I looked at them and they were like, there's no harmonics. <laughs> and like this human was like so profoundly troubled. Um, and so that stuck in my mind, and so then I had Kayla read this article, and um and she got it right away, and it I think it legitimately took her explaining it to me for four months, for me to get it. Like I was slow on the uptake, um and you know at the risk of of projecting my own experience with this information onto other people, I don't want to presume that everyone is as dense as I am, but like that is the way I experience trying to talk to people about this is they cannot, com- it's, it's like I am looking at a map of Nebraska and they are looking at Montana and like we're trying to find Omaha. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, just, it's just like the visual information in front of them just rejects what I'm saying. And, and so it's really hard to, to understand this stuff. So are there harmonics or not? Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah no.
0: I mean, if you run a, noise, a compression wave through a spectrogram, it's looking for them. It is looking And for it them. will find them. I mean, the, the Fourier analysis will a- vocal fam. we've said this before, but what a spectrogram does is it runs a, com- a compression wave through an algorithm called a fast Fourier transform. Yes, it does. Which is looking <clears throat> for harmonics. Imagine that you wanted to believe something like the fact that, I don't know, a deadly virus wasn't real. Topical. And you look to the internet to find sources that said it wasn't. If you look for them, you're that's going you're to doing. find them. Imagine that's when? a spectrogram.
2: <laughs> imagine that's an algorithm. Yeah.
0: Sorry, oh. an, an algorithm. <laughs> an algor- imagine that is an
2: algorithm. There, yeah. we've
0: done it. Which it is. We've done it. Now you're learning voice acoustics in most voice pedagogy classes.
2: Yeah, so I think the the thing to... The thing to understand, I'm just gonna let the weight of what you just said sort of echo in my imagination for a little bit. Um the, the thing to to really know about spectrograms is that the spectrogram that you look at, like the the image. The gram, right? The spectrogram. The actual the, graph, the, graph the itself. The graph itself. Yeah. The actual graph. The graph, itself,
0: which has time and frequency and intensity
2: and intensity. It does yeah. not have pressure. The thing that you look at is the result of an algorithm, and the algorithm has changeable um, parameters. parameters. Yeah, it has changeable parameters, and so you can set. So let's just let's just frame it this way. If you have Ochi Vista Video Pro you can record yourself singing its default settings will show harmonics for basically all, any pitch a human being could reasonably sing right its default settings are going to display the harmonics of that pitch and if you're like if you do that instead it will not show harmonics right and that that's one of the things we're like well you know are you, are you periodic are you singing a pitch if you are harmonics if you're not a periodic noise some sort of stochastic shape in the spectrogram um, the question is, what happens if you change those settings? And so you could take the same file, right? Oh ah, record yourself doing something, right? And default, it'll show harmonics. And then if you go into settings and go to analyzer view, I think, analyzer settings, and then there's, um, there's a windowing function, and you, there's a single parameter that you can adjust and changing that parameter, all of a sudden the image in your spectrogram changes. And instead of seeing, let's call it a horizontal analysis of the sound, where you have equally spaced, assuming you're in the linear view, equally spaced harmonics that each have their own integrity, um, and they're all continuous, instead of that, you have a vertical view of the sound file. And so you're going to see top to bottom, in the frequency spectrum, you're going to see top to bottom bursts of energy, like broadband impulses, And then as you move from the left to the right in the time domain, you are going to see some bands of frequency energy continue, I'm going to say ringing, I hope that makes sense, continue oscillating for longer. And then there's going to be the next broadband and there's going to be some decay ringing in the next broadband. And each one of those broadband impulses is the bulk folds closing. And so like right out of the bat, like your spectrograms don't tell you what they think they're telling you like what you think that they're telling you they they're they're telling you what the output of a spectrogram is given a certain set of settings what those settings do and i would encourage anybody who teaches a voice pad class who addresses harmonics at least get this level of understanding of what a fast Fourier transform does what i'm going to say is a, a simplification but come up to this understanding of it when we make sound, we introduce disturbances into a medium, right? We are creating we are creating essentially drops in pressure well below atmospheric pressure. And one, nature seeks to equalize so that negative pressure always rushes toward positive pressure. Two, nature sucks at it. And so nature also always overcorrects. And so a negative drop in pressure will always bang through atmospheric pressure and become a compression, a positive pressure area, which then nature seeks to equalize as soon as it catches it, which will bang through atmospheric pressure and become negative, And it just keeps oscillating. Like you push a kid on a swing and don't push them again. They will swing back and forth several times, right? That's, that's how nature works. Um, and so, so what you're
0: saying, it's like that popular song nowadays, bang, bang, bang.
2: I, I yes. everyone just
0: looked at me strange. <laughs> yeah, my, da- my daughter would my sweet my daughter would laugh. Anyway, You're, moving okay, on.
2: Um, so th- that's that's what sound production is, right? And this is these are pressure changes along an analog gradient, which is to say it's all continuous. That, as it radiates in the air, it, is literally it's it's like planes of air wiggling forward and backward that then hit something. So, so in the case of like, oh, I'm going to do voice analysis in my voice lab, it's a microphone. The microphone has a, a diaphragm, which is an impossibly thin sheet of some material, metal, Kevlar, whatever. Um, and that, that piece of matter is so tuned to subtle motion that the motion of the air molecules as the wave propagates And the wave propagating is really saying like at any one place, air molecules are wiggling forward and backward, right? They have motion and velocity. And so they they move the microphone diaphragm. Microphone goes into your computer. I'm gonna skip some steps, but your, your computer basically says, okay, if we convert that motion, that analog motion, continuous motion of the diaphragm into continuous voltage, so that's changes in the voltage of an electrical signal, it gets to a part of your computer that converts it into what are called digital samples. So instead of saying, I'm going to represent this sound wave as a continuous function, is what we would say, instead of saying, I'm going to represent it as there are infinite values along that curve, I'm going to pick discrete moments in time. And those discrete moments in time each have a specific pressure measurement. Atmospheric, above atmospheric, below atmospheric, high pressure, low pressure, pushed together, pulled apart. And so then what a fast Fourier transform does is it says, okay, the question is, how many samples am I gonna look at at the same time? That is what a fast Fourier transform, that is the question, right? We call this a window. It's a little more complicated than this, but this is the basic info you need. And so if you have a one second long sample, and you are sampling that at 48,000 times a second, that means you can just imagine a spreadsheet. Like that's literally what digital audio files are, is it's like a spreadsheet. And the first column is like which sample it is from one to 48,000. And then the second column is literally just what is the pressure value at that timestamp, right? It's called a time series. And so the Fourier transform then says, okay, I'm going to look at half a second at a time. So that would be 24,000 samples. And what it does is it looks for repeating patterns within that time duration. Now, let's say that you are singing a C6, right? A C6 means that your vocal folds are contacting basically a thousand times a second.
0: C6 vocal fan.
2: Yeah. It's a high C for a soprano. For most sopranos. Um, that means that if your vocal folds are touching a thousand times a second and your your Fast Fourier Transform window is going to look at half a second at a time, that means 500 glottal cycles are within that window. Now most people are familiar with a notion called the uncertainty principle. The uncertainty principle says like... Reality has multiple aspects simultaneously, and if you measure one of those aspects well, typically our resolution for other aspects gets tricky, like we're not able to measure the other aspect accurately. and um, So there is something called a time-frequency trade-off with these sorts of algorithms. So, imagine that you have that soprano singing their high C, and you are averaging together 500 glottal cycles at once what the algorithm is going to do is it is going to look for repeated patterns, right? And the patterns that would fit into the duration of that fundamental would also be integer multiples of that fundamental. The trade-off is like you can say with confidence, Oh, there is strong energy at the pitch equivalent to C7, what we would call the second harmonic of that C6. There is strong energy around that frequency in this signal. I can't tell you where in the signal it is, right? Right. And that's the time frequency trade-off. So if you have enough glottal cycles within this fast Fourier transform window, if you have enough of those glottal cycles, you can say with high confidence whether energy around some frequency exists or not. But you can't say where it exists. Now if you took the window and shortened it all the way down to one millisecond, so one millisecond is the period duration of this right. one glottal cycle at the pitch C6, a thousand of them per second-ish, one millisecond is the, the pitch period. Um, and you, you set the window that long, you can say with like high confidence um, when certain things take place, when energy of a certain frequency takes place, but the spectrogram becomes like really smooshy, <laughs> right? Like like the, the width of these, uh, the width of the frequency information becomes super diffuse from top to bottom. Because again, there's this Time frequency trade off. It's like I can say with confidence that there is more brightness at the beginning, more high frequency energy at the beginning of the glottal cycle, but then I like, I lack confidence to say exactly what the boundaries are in the frequency domain because our time domain resolution became so good.
0: So with these challenges, at just sort of taking a spectrogram at face value, rather than having explored them, perhaps the way you just described, yeah. <coughs> you sort of you sort of did some historical reading and turned your efforts to considering, uh, and and I want to use the term here, but I want to kind of describe it in a layman's way. You turned to transient theory of voice production, which is what Shen and Miller had talked about yeah. in their paper <coughs> in 2019. Correct. Which goes back actually, the transient theory of voice production is basically looking at voice production from a single glottal impulse response of the vocal tract.
2: Is that a yeah. fair summary? That that is a fair summary, and and so then we would say, what is the opposite of the transient theory? And the, the opposite of the transient theory is what we call the steady state or harmonic theory, and Which um, from
0: requires more time.
2: Yep. Which Um, means you you look at longer durations of of voicing uh, or of anything but of voicing in this case and then you average together all of the information present within that duration. Right. So if we want to say phenomenologically how do we produce sound it's the vocal folds open, the vocal folds come to close and there are various driving forces that make those things happen and when the vocal folds close the air that had been flowing From the lungs to the vocal tract, suddenly stops flowing, right? And in stopping flowing, and the air mass in the vocal tract continues moving forward because it has direction. um, There is a sudden drop to low pressure, and all sound is is a change in pressure in a medium. This was always
0: something that Don was very clear with me on. but not because he wanted me looking at the waveform. He just wanted me lining up the audio signal with the EGG.
2: With the EGG, yeah. No, that totally tracks. Because uh, you want that, that moment of the greatest acceleration in vocal fold contact area to align visually right. with the, the with fastest big, with drop the, in pressure. With the big pressure, Yeah. correct. Um, yeah, and, and so you know, just even saying it's like, oh, everything we currently understand is, is a model. And there's this other model that's out there. And and this is the thing that really, and this is why I think it's hard for people because it was hard for me, and again maybe I'm projecting, but um, Chen's paper, like the challenge that I had with it was like basically the introduction. And the introduction was this historical context where he says, okay, when when did the study of voice acoustics really start? Well it's probably this guy Leonhard Euler, right? and he eighteenth century, eighteenth century, yeah, quill pen friends, um, he, like he American liked, <laughs> Revolution folks. I know it's crazy, right?
0: Alexander Hamilton
2: and Amazing. Mozart, <laughs> not <laughs> to mention what? Mozart. That's so let's true. just put us into That's historical true. context here. Yeah, lots of wigs, lots of wigs, friends, um, and and so he puts forward a theory in a vacuum, right? It's it's like in the absence of this of the steady state model. In the absence of imagining that that everything that is pitched is generated from a harmonic series, right? In the absence of that, he puts forward a model that is basically saying, every time we voice, or you know, the thing that creates sound in an organ pipe, right? It's like every time we voice, it is a transient burst of energy that then excites the transient resonances of that resonating body. And so like, so we've said transient like nine times now, it's so like, what does transient mean? Um, so if you think about it, like, what is, a, what is a human who is a transient, right? It's somebody who like comes to town and then leaves quickly, right? If you think about um, being a college student, right? So like, Liz, this is probably you. It's like when I was a student, I was like, well, when I'm in charge, we'll do this, this and this because y'all systems are terrible, right? Um, and sorry then you find out you're uh, never
0: actually in charge anyway yeah, yeah well, there's that too that's, different, um, that's a different thing I'll, I'll again
2: but but at the time like i i made peace with it when i was like oh i'm the transient one the administrators and faculty they're the continuous ones i'm the transient one so nothing is going to change because i'm going to be here and then gone right so my perspective is not as important in that respect um if we think about it just in terms of energy transfer within the the, the voice, within our voice production system, we would say that transient means essentially a change in pressure that rapidly occurs and then dissipates. So rather than something that is continuous, it is a change in pressure that did not exist, suddenly exists lasts for some amount of time and it decreases in its amplitude over that time that it exists. And so you can come to understand voicing as essentially every time the vocal folds close there is a strong, I mean a varying in strength, but there's a stronger than normal drop in pressure just above the vocal folds. Sound is agnostic to whether something is a compression of air molecules or an expansion of air molecules uh, because every expansion becomes a compression and every compression becomes an expansion. doesn't matter where in that cycle you start. So that expansion of air molecules propagates as a wave in the vocal tract. And, you know, due to, to friction and the inertia of the air mass in the vocal tract, it does not last forever. And in doing so, it sets all of the air molecules in the vocal tract in motion, and then we can characterize the, the result of all of those motion, like all of, all of those uh, air molecule movements, we can characterize the final result of that as essentially like the resonant set of the vocal tract. The resonant set of the vocal tract springs into existence rather rapidly and similarly dies away over time. It, the resonant response of the vocal tract is transient, and so like th- think about this. So I'll I'll do this not with singing, but I'm going to flick my hand with my finger, right? Yep. And we you got hear it. that that is here and then gone. That is a sudden sound. If I flick my throat and I do the here's my first formant um, with my finger, you'll hear the slap of my finger against my skin, my neck. That is a transient impulse that excites the air in the vocal tract transiently, and then that excitation excites the transient resonant response of the vocal tract, which you will hear as a pitch that is here and then gone and dies away. Right? That is not a if we're just talking about functional imagination, not like I'm gonna measure you down to the nanometer, right, in a lab. But if we're just talking about our imagination, that's actually what's happening in the voice, is the vocal folds are inputting a it sounds like a balloon pop or like clapping your hands, right? They're inputting that energy into the vocal tract, and then the vocal tract has a cascading response to that energy propagating through it that produces energy that continues to ring longer at some frequencies than at other frequencies. And I think and, and this, it, is, this is the transient theory of voice production. I think it's important
0: for us to say here that this is not, please vocal fam, don't think that this is something that Dr. Howell actually came to. Oh, like God. this is something that has been accepted science in the speech science community for
2: it's never not. <laughs>
0: I mean, a lo- basically, in the existence of the speech science community. Yeah. And, but so has the the steady state theory, is actually quite a bit younger.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. And both, as we've been kind of talking about, are, I, I kind of like to present it to students this way, Vocal Fam. These are kind of the opposite sides of a coin. That also, or better yet, a three-sided D and D die. <laughs> like we're playing, like we're like like we've, we're playing D and D, and we've got like, or maybe the little. I want p- you to give
1: me that three-sided die. I
0: know. I'm trying to imagine the physics of that. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> give, give me that three.
1: sided Okay, die. well, give imagine a
0: fourth one then, where side one is the steady state theory, side two is the transient theory, side three is what your ears and brain are actually perceiving as noise, and perhaps the fourth side of that on your little pyramid is what the singer is experiencing as part of all of that.
2: Oh, sure, which I promise you is not like, there's my sixth harmonic, seventh harmonic, and there's my eighth harmonic.
0: (laughs) No, in fact, one of the things you really bring out in the paper is that some of the phenomenon that we really experience as singers are probably more easy, like for example if you are a classical singer or even honestly a contemporary musical theater singer, you turn the voice a lot. You yeah. experience closing vowel timbres and, and if you're familiar with Bozeman's language, our dear friend Ken Bozeman's language like you understand that these things happen in the singing voice and then if you understand some more sort of just voice acoustic stuff, you understand that that infect, it affects things like impedance, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, or resistance of the vocal tract itself and the chords, whatever, it doesn't matter. Point being, you experience these things as a singer. And you postulate in the paper that the transient theory is actually a quicker way to phenomenologically understand
2: what we experience as a singer. I really believe that. And, and even the fact that when you were you were just telling your story there, the fact that you were like, "Well, it could be more complicated, right?" But like, here's the ba- here's the basic way to talk about this. Like, I-, I think that's actually how voice pedagogy people think about everything. They have a simple story they tell themselves about how this aspect of voicing. Is relevant or not. I and, think and we do that with a lot of things in life though, if I may. I think we do. And, I mean and so, not
0: just not just voice pedagogy.
2: Well, so so then the question is, is the story that you're telling yourself limiting you? From that's the question. Other things. That, right. that, that's that is, the, that question. the question. And and I think, you know, I am such a product of the voice pedagogy literature. Oh that I didn't I didn't see too. the water I was swimming in. You know, I, I didn't I didn't understand and and you know, I, I think it's important for us to say this out loud. I mean, and maybe to some people, this invalidates my credibility, right? Like I learned something. like like it's important to say like I was confused and and I was confused, n- not for lack of having principles of voice production on my desk. Do you know what I mean? Like, I read it, but but I think when when we have such a strong, model-level conviction that the world is a certain way, then reading a text like that might as well be like reading Dostoevsky or something, where where they don't translate the Russian names, mm-hmm. and you're just like, I'm just going to call you Bob, because like <laughs> I don't know what that Cyrillic is, right? And so we, like, w- we don't actually encounter the information. We have an automatic filter that seeks to find the parts we already agree with.
0: Well, and you say something Sort of along these lines in the paper too, where you say if you are a voice teacher and not teaching voice pedagogy and you have your functional ways of describing to a singer how oh, to yeah. apply these concepts in go a girl, voice go. lesson, yeah, do don't thing. don't don't change your life. Yeah. You know, you really direct your paper and I guess this conversation really towards any of us who are having to take up the challenge of teaching voice pedagogy in the classroom yeah. in the academy.
2: Yeah, and, and I really would like to make an argument that, you know, if we're, if we're teaching academically, we should be offering, you know, not just information, but also historical context, because, like, the whole, God, the whole point of learning is to start where other people stopped, right? It, it's not to, like, fix your thinking in a specific way. And, and I think for for noble reasons for great reasons the information that we receive in the voice pedagogy world is completely focused on what singing visually looks like in spectrograms when you set the window duration to capture multiple glottal cycles simultaneously yeah like that that is like, a, every model from venard on that that and, is how we've understood and, and
0: i mean basically vogel fam You know, I think it's really important for us. You may have encountered the term in your reading, long term average spectra. Oh, yeah. If you are looking at the spectrogram portion of Voce Vista, you are looking at some form of long term average spectra. That is exactly right. You are not looking at a a glottal response or of the vocal tract. You're not looking at just a a short term windowed sample. You are already looking at a process that has gone through averaging.
2: Yep, and not just averaging in the frequency domain, but right. the whole notion of like, what, what is the intensity of a harmonic that we would see in a power spectrum, right? It's like that is taking amplitude fluctuations, which is going above and below atmospheric pressure, that is taking positive and negative variations in pressure, and it essentially takes all the negative ones and flips them positive, And then it finds the average line of best fit for some duration of time through that. And and so I, I wanna make the argument that the the pressure regime, and Tietza makes this argument, right? That the pressure regime just above the, the vocal folds has an effect on how quickly the vocal folds sort of snap shut. I mean, he right?
0: literally, that's literally, you know, the basis of nonlinearity, almost. Yeah, there's nonlinear
2: I mean, acoustic driving forces, right? right. And um, and there's also other driving forces, right? But the right. higher you get in pitch, the more relevant these become. Nonlinearity, to talk about. vocal
0: fam, being the opposite of like we think of the system as linear from pressure, power source of, of the respiration to vibration source of the vocal folds to resonator source. That yeah. would be a linear form of interaction, a basic upstream interaction, but rather thinking that there are downstream interactions that are
2: more than just that. Well, and if anyone really wants to break their mind, it's like you can say, "Well, what is support?" And and some people would be like it's a thing I do with my body muscles. And then there's another group of people who would say, "Well, you really have to consider the valve of the vocal folds because that co-creates subglottal pressure, and it's the it's the muscular force acting against that subglottal pressure that creates a sensation of resistance." And but then you can be like, "Well, wait, but the vocal tract shape affects the closing dynamics of the vocal folds, or or at least the change in pressure above the vocal folds, those dynamics, and if that's true, then that means you can't understand a sensation of support without also understanding the way you're shaping your vocal tract, and so like there, it's essentially it's it's like Nick says, it's not an arrow that goes from one place to another; it's an arrow that goes from one place to another, and at the same time, there's a backwards arrow going Ex- the other direction. Exactly.
0: You know, it's interesting too. Thinking about all this as this year, I and I don't, and listen, Vocal Fam do not think that my understanding on this topic is as uh, thorough as Ian's and don't think that Ian's as as thorough as some of our speech science community oh my god no they they're not confused about this. i mean they're i think joshua was <laughs> i think joshua has been laughing at all of us cuz he's been kind of looking at us going well you know you guys i know uh darn it joshua um he'll but, be on but,
2: next week vocal fam don't worry but but that's that's the thing is like to an extent the speech science community conspired to give us a model that they perceive, and it's not like wicked agency here, right? But like they perceive this was the model we could understand. It had the most utility, they thought. And I just wanna make the argument that it's actually confusing. Not that it doesn't have utility, though. Yeah, but so here's an example. I wanna give an example. So um, give me the chapter verse, what is belt, acoustically.
0: Uh, H2F1 interaction. High energy noise, evenly Uh, spread out.
2: No, no, no. It's not that.
0: Well, it is in my
2: definition. So the chapter and verse is it's the alignment of your second harmonic with your lowest vocal tract
0: resonance. Yeah, well, that's not my definition. Well, that's because
2: you have listened to what that energy sounds like. Yes, it sounds like
0: a lovely little halo-y ring.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, It's a very pure, easy sound. So then you have to ask yourself, like, why would... Why would I say belt is a strong second harmonic? When
0: we describe belt as metallic and ringy and buzzy and cutting yeah. cutting and whatever.
2: Yeah, exactly right. Um, and so I, I think we can just look at that question through two different models. So if we say the steady state or harmonic theory, we would say, I'm going to look at 50, 50 glottal cycles at once. And I'm going to average all the information present within those glottal cycles into a single value, right? A single... Spectrum, and then I'm going to repeat that process over and over and over again, and that's what creates the sense of harmonics is that repetition of those spectra. Um, what that leads us to imagine in our functional imagination is that the belt is the second harmonic. Anybody who's and our taken... literature does say that it does. And it anybody does. anybody who has taken the time in Voce Vista Video Pro, the new new version. In Pratt, we'll do this. It's totally free. It's a little clunkier because it's Pratt, but um, to just listen to that part of the spectrum, listen to the second harmonic part of the spectrum, and it is like pure, completely pitched. There's no buzziness, there's no edge, there's no cut, right? So, the harmonic theory of voice production, I think, teaches us to look in the wrong part of the spectrum. Like from an imaginative point of view, like nobody's publishing a paper about this if you're teaching this in a voice ped class, but just in terms of like you are telling your students that a certain part of the spectrum is belt. If we look at this from transient theory of voice production instead, we would say it is not the second harmonic of the vocal fold source sound interacting with a receptive resonator as though that resonator is just like lying dormant at all times waiting for someone to give it a sine tone right? That's not how it works. What is happening is the the vocal folds are releasing uh, an impulse. There's a drop in pressure that propagates as a sound wave in the vocal tract. The resonant response of that vocal tract, just like if you go just like if you push a kid on a swing, is going to take a certain amount of time for them to oscillate, right? And the actual frequency doesn't change, just the amplitude changes. amplitude and their velocity changes. Um, It is going to excite the vocal tract in a way that that resonance begins at a low pressure value and it is going to oscillate through atmospheric pressure up to a high pressure value through atmospheric pressure back down to a low pressure value. Because of the way quarter wave resonators work, that return to that low pressure value happens at the back of the vocal tract right? If you just understand it through a simple quarter-wave resonator model, that it's not just that it's low pressure, it is low pressure at a time and place. And the time and place is above the vocal folds. If you let that, that bouncing around of that resonance happen two times, completely go through its low to high to low, low to high to low cycle, when the next closing of the vocal folds occurs, Essentially, what happens is it's like you gave a kid a push on a swing, and it struggles a little little as a model because it really would be giving them a pull on the swing, right? Um, But you give them a push on a swing and they swing away from you and back and on their own away from you and back and then you perfectly meet them to give them the next push. That is actually the acoustic interaction in the vocal tract. That is expressed through the transient model of voice production, right? Now, here's the messed up thing. Here is where the harmonic theory lets us down. Or at least it doesn't point our imagination towards the real, relevant, important, meaningful part of the sound. In doing that, that drop to low pressure from the resonance coincides in phase, which is to say at the same time in the same place, with the drop in pressure from the cessation of transglottal flow when the folds close. And if you understand wave interference, in term, so if you have two pressure waves, the crests of them meeting at a time and a place, you add them. And so the way noise cancelling headphones work is it takes the sound of the world around you and it flips everything. So every pressure maximum becomes a minimum, right? Every compression becomes an expansion in a perfect, a, a perfect copy that is just inverted. Um, and then it adds it to whatever music you're listening to so every time there's a pressure maximum it cancels out the pressure minimum that was outside in the outside world and we hear atmospheric pressure which is silence Um, but that means that if you have a pressure drop that coincides in phase with a pressure drop it becomes like a super mega pressure Drop. drop right and so the alignment of that resonance that rings two times for every one time the vocal folds close. And notice I'm using the language of the transient theory. I'm not saying the second harmonic aligns with the resonance. I'm saying you excited the resonance and it is gonna ring for some amount of time. And you are happening to have the next closure of the vocal folds coincide with two times through the ring out of that resonance, right? It's just a different way to think about it. We would say that the fundamental oscillation of the vocal folds is a subharmonic of that resonance. That'll probably be the most complicated thing I say today, um, rather than the resonance aligns with the second harmonic of the source sound. And any physicist who listened to what I just said would would say, "Duh! Like, of course." Of, of course that's what it is it's convenient to talk about the spectrum can we please get back to the spectrum right and the problem is voice pedagogy people are like spectrum is real <laughs> spectrum showing reality and then we conform our pedagogical and teaching models to to that reality right you know well let me sorry let me let me let me tie this up with the bow um If you ask yourself what is the effect of that wave interference of the negative drop in pressure above the vocal folds just due to the transglottal airflow being cut off and the return wave from that resonance that is a low pressure front coinciding essentially what it does is it makes that initial drop in pressure that is the right that is the clapping of the hands the popping of the balloon it makes it stronger and it makes it faster and high frequency energy in a voice is not high it's fast. fast and low frequency energy is not low it's slow and and so if you want to ask yourself why does aligning the second resonance with sorry the first resonance with the second harmonic or why does aligning the closing of the vocal folds with every two patterns of the resonance in the vocal track why does that make a bright brash sound it's because it helps those air molecules accelerate faster than they otherwise would, and so we may see that second harmonic strong on a spectrogram. We have to know that that changes the entire spectrum, right? Because it nonlinearly affects the way the vocal fold closure creates a low pressure drop in the vocal tract, and that's that's a paradigm shift for voice pedagogy people. And it tells you where to look on the spectrogram. So go to your spectrogram, great. Spectrograms are amazing, right? Um, But you should just know, like, the effect of that second harmonic you see is the entire spectrum. It's not that second harmonic. You're not doing another thing that's causing the brightness. Like, the second harmonic is part of it.
0: So I want to say two things. I want to say a preview for next week. One of the things about transient theory that we're really looking at is we're really looking when you're considering transient theory, you're looking at a, a, a very short, you're really looking at a glottal impulse and the yep. vocal tract response.
2: Very short time.
0: Yep. Incredibly short amount of time. And that is a way to consider all this next week. Dr. Joshua Glasner is going to join us friend of the podcast and talk to us about a different way of considering analyzing voicing called spectral moments. Oh, yeah. Those are great. So, so if you're interested in, in this kind of stuff, come back. Um, th- uh, Ian, thank you for, for making time for us, and thank you for teaching Liz's class today. <laughs> um, but I, I want to say something just, just to encourage everybody. So the, what, as I tried to introduce this stuff last fall, and Liz, you can confirm this, the moment that their brain I broke their brains, really, was not actually this, this, this year in listening to phenomena, which is usually when it is. I think the moment their brains broke was when I said that it was the vocal tract that was the thing that was actually making the noise and the vocal folds were closed. Yeah. When that happened. And that was the moment their brains. Br- Am I correct? Is that is that a? F-
1: yeah, no, that seems right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like that was the thing that everybody. So, it just if you're out there in voice pedagogy land and you're teaching this stuff, um, uh, that was that was the challenging moment that you really need to think through yourself.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, to be ready to confront their imaginations, as you said. Because that was the thing. Because we are just so in a world that we think of the vocal folds basically like a Rosenberg wave generator.
2: Yeah. You
0: know, and uh, and and that's how we think about based on the idea of the vocal folds being the vibrator. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and th- and then we'll. Excise, you know, a canine larynx or something, and we'll approximate the folds and blow air through it, and we'll say C harmonics. The, the com- yeah, the contribution of the vocal folds is the laryngeal buzz, which is ha- equally spaced harmonics in the frequency domain. And
0: yet, there's not a speech scientist who would not argue with the idea that it's the vocal tract that's making the noise.
2: So this this is the thing. yeah. and You're saying noise? I have gosh, I have a problem with the term noise. Okay, well, sorry. Me, to me, that okay, forgive me, sto- stochastic, yes. but um. Sorry, go ahead, sir.
1: Oh, so I also wonder sometimes, like, how much of, kind of, we're talking about, like, the images and what we imagine, like, coming into these things comes from language we use in lessons. Like, if you think about, like, mm. the singery words, like, spin and ring and focusing on the line, and it does kind of create this mental image of the sound being this, this literal wave coming up and out, and, like, yeah. how much of it is that is coming from this background and this language that does sort of form a mental picture of your voice before you ever even get to a pedagogy classroom where somebody then says but also this is more real like this is what's actually happening
2: I I think I think there's a even another way to extend that that idea Sarah which is like there's also a a way of talking about pedagogy and I'm going to do a hand gesture which people at home are not going to be able to see but it's like you know if you put your hands right in front of your face and then like oh like imagine bringing them back like a yeah. resonant sound is one where it feels like the sound is holding itself back somehow mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so we even have and that's just observational right we even have this sense that resonance is a real physical thing i i would say i i, I want to make explicit something that that nick just said though and maybe this will be the radical thing that everybody hears at home <laughs> that makes them think i'm have lost it um but i would say Tietze has danced around this idea, if not come right out and said it. Heller, uh, who's a published psychoacoustic author uh, from Princeton, I think, has come out and said this, and I deeply believe this to be true. I think we need to seriously consider whether the vocal tract is actually the source of the voice sound, rather than the vocal folds. Um, you know, albeit like it's a, it's a sound generator that requires input to start. Right, um, but the way that the vocal tract responds to what is a broadband excitation from the vocal folds, the way that it responds creates sound. Yeah, it doesn't just filter. Right, it actually creates new sound waves, just as if you stand right up against the wall and talk to the wall, and you'll notice your voice is louder because the wall made a copy of your voice. Yeah. Um, and so I would I would encourage anybody. You know, I'm. I'm very close to being finished on this essay, and my my hope is I will, uh, will get it accepted for publication soon. And so maybe in a year we'll all be able to like chew on this together, having all read this document. But mm-hmm. I, I think I would love to to leave people Nick with the thought that if we just look historically, it's like Euler is is 18th century, and then like people were really struggling. Like there were not digital computers. Mm-hmm. Right. The theory of digital computing did not exist yet. Right. Right. And so. So, you know, you have 18th century statement about how the voice is produced. And it's like, well, I can't really do anything with it. It's an interesting theory. And then in the 1830s, you have people asking questions about how it is that that we could uh, understand speech. And lo and behold, Joseph Fourier had published this this Fourier series algorithm in uh, I think it was 1822. I, I'm bad at remembering years, but somewhere around there. And so so somebody was like, hey, let's see what happens when we do this. And so they tried to apply the Fourier series to repeated um, glottal cycles. and It's like you get results, you get a spectrum, but it sucked <laughs> like it was computationally challenging. It was really hard to do the math and it was really hard. like you basically you're having to record somebody making a wiggle on a piece of paper with a pencil and then you're looking at that wiggle on the piece of paper and you're trying to do math on it right Mm -hmm. and so so wheatstone comes along in 1830s and says hey this might be easier let's think about this and then by the 1860s um, helmholtz publishes like a more refined version of that but it's really like hey guys this is easier Um, And then by, you know, the 1920s, you can read uh, Fletcher's writing and Fletcher basically presents the transient theory and the harmonic or steady state theory side by side. He says, well, if you're interested in X, you should look at voicing through the transient theory. If you're interested in Y, you should look at it through the steady state theory. But these are both viable ways to think about voicing. And then, you know, it's, it's really like the, the work at Blatchley Park and sort of the advent of initially analog computing, and then you move to vacuum tubes uh, to act as transistors and then you move to integrated circuits. So by the 1960s, it's like, it's not just that Font said, hey, let's do a really comprehensive look at this steady state model. It's not just that he did that when he pr- proposed the source filter model, it's literally he had computers and and digital computers with integrated with transistors that were doing the computations could do a lot of them really fast. And so like it 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 was just it's the intersection of technology and human thought, right? And the technology allowed us to do something fast that in the past we would have done slow. And that turns into the narrative of how it is the voice works. You look at look at page 20 of Johann Sundberg's The Science of the Singing Voice. He shows uh, pulmonary, you know, the lung source, he shows the vibrator, he shows the resonator. And each one of those is a little arrow to the right. And there's a graph that represents the, the contribution of the output of that system. And he shows a power spectrum for the vocal folds, right? Look at Thomas Hickson, preclinical speech science, he starts with like the glottal pulse, the flow glottogram, and then like immediately jumps to the output of the voice being a sawtooth wave. And like these people understand that they're skipping a step. That they're not showing us, like, oh, there is a, a transient drop in pressure that propagates as a wave and excites resonances that then themselves decay. They're skipping that step because it's just easier to talk about it's it. It's convenient. It's convenient, yeah. But that they're not confused. That is really the thing. And I want to say, as as a member of the voice pedagogy community, like, if if we think the fact that looking at a spectrogram that shows harmonics is evidence that that is real. Um, I just, I just want to say, I want to read you two quotes real quick. Um, And these are both from Sean A. Fullop, F-U-L-O-P, from his 2011 book, Speech Spectrum Analysis. And this is where a lot of the historical information comes from. There's a whole chapter. It's just like, what is the history of the Fourier transform? beach reading it just grabs you grabs you and beach holds on to read. Beach you
0: you and i right? have very different reading <laughs> different <laughs> definitions of beach reading and sarah and i have different definitions <laughs> different, of beach reading and that's true, i'm and thinking I'm, of
1: what i read at the beach this summer and i'm like
0: mm. and i'm going to say that sarah and your beach readings are very divergent I you suspect don't know that so diver- he yeah, might, yeah that's true you might
1: take the bridgerton series to the beach we don't know oh them. i love the
0: have. bridgerton series you see it's so good
1: boom
2: maybe you two are closer than me anyway you don't <laughs> you don't understand nick that the the core of what makes Baroque music, which is m- most of what I'm saying, expressive, is being trashy. And so <laughs> I think I think Just we are It all comes back. It all comes back. Okay, so here's this quote from Full of 20, 2011. Um, writing from a signal processing perspective, he says, The desire to attribute an independent physical existence to the components found by Fourier analysis, which is that is the algorithm that generates all of the images we use to teach people that the vocal folds produce a sawtooth wave, right, produce a spectrum of harmonics. Um, The desire to attribute that independent physical existence to those components has often been a powerful influence on the interpretation of spectral representations. 2011, nevertheless, it is now recognized that the Fourier analysis of a function, so that's the waveform in this case, the pressure variations, provides us with a different representation, which is mathematically correct overall, but whose individual components, the harmonics, may not correspond to anything physical in an obvious way. And he goes on to quote somebody named, I'm gonna murder their name, I think it's Boas, um b-o-u-a-s-s-e in 1926 wrote and he would i think he was arguing with somebody in print he says unless one has lost the most elementary common sense it is impossible to attribute an objective existence to the harmonic oscillations which emerge in the Fourier series right so if if we are making an argument well the spectrogram shows me a thing therefore spectrogram true Um, Just know the speech science community and the signal processing community does not agree. And in fact thinks that this is such a simple mistake that they moved past it decades ago, a century ago, right? This confusion was debated and cleared up. Um, And so I I would just invite everyone out there who is teaching voice acoustics this year, next year. Like really ask yourself. Are you serving your students by teaching them the simple source filter model first? Are you serving your students by imposing a level of complexity on the information that they do not hear? We do not hear most harmonics, right? We hear a swath of color. We hear a swath of sound that can be qualitatively simple or complex or buzzy or part of the pitch or not part of the pitch, right? This is all from psychoacoustics. are you actually serving them by introducing that complexity first? Like th- that's the shibboleth, right? We all have to just agree on that first and then we can talk about voice acoustics. Or could you talk about it as simple relationships? Sarah, you have a resonance that's around the pitch G5 for an ah. Mm-hmm. That means if you are singing a middle C, that that resonance is going to ring three times for every one time your vocal folds close. If you are singing a G4, it's going to ring two times for every one time your vocal folds close we're on a music staff you're not memorizing harmonics we're talking musical intervals a 12th an octave a unison if you're singing that g5 we're going to expect some stuff's going to happen when you have those musical interval interval relationships and, and you I'm just glad, talk about that experientially
0: i'm really glad you brought it back to that just to put a bow on this because i think that I think in the end that was what I really ended up presenting in the like kind of ped one class yeah. last yeah. term to Liz's class which was basically like look here's the quick and dirty stuff you really need to know about this to teach yeah um, uh, and now we're in a different course and considering some different things but, but the the, the, the it goes back to Sarah, the episode that we did in the fall. Acoustic skipped to the good part. Uh, yeah. if, if you if you don't really want to look at the complexity, you don't necessarily have to. Yeah.
2: And I would argue the steady state theory is the complex way to look. It
0: out. is the complex thing. I agree. Um. So anyway, it's been a long day, Vocal Fam. <laughs> this is it's this. Is, it's, it's been a while since we've recorded this long, but but I wanted to give Ian a chance to talk about this. Um, and and who knows? Maybe we'll we'll come back to it again at some point. Um, I
1: think it'd be helpful. Yeah, once you have this is published and people yeah, like, once have read, can it, read it, because um, it definitely it just kind of flushes out. I think some of the things we've been talking about too, and gives some additional perspective. C-
2: can I say that the one last caveat, Nick, is like because I I don't keep things to myself, right? So I I talk a lot about the things I'm thinking about and sort of get interaction and reactions from people in the community, uh, which I think makes the writing stronger, right? But uh, a little bit feels like a grind, uh, like it's hard to explain stuff a lot. And I just want to make the argument that if if anybody listens to this hour and is like, that maybe sounds like it could be interesting, but like, what about the practical applications, right? So I, I can say for me, it is deeply practically applicable. It's completely reoriented the way that I think about the interaction of the vocal tract and phonation qualities, and and gives me, it tells me where to listen in the sound for the effect of certain vocal tract phonation alignments, much more powerfully than the spectrogram ever did. Um, but I just want to say, like, please notice that you have a lot of prior knowledge right now that is completely rooted in the steady state model, and, and I think we we are all victims of the availability bias or the availability heuristic. Which is like, we only know what we know, right? Yep. And and our view of new information is profoundly affected by our ability to categorize it instantly into a taxonomy that was generated by the things we already know. So most people forget that it was hard to learn the harmonic series at first. And most people forget that it was hard to memorize the order of resonances in a frequency space that associate with certain vowel continuums. And so, don't think that just because you have a practical application based on the way you already understand the world, like just recognize you put in work. And so, I want to invite people, even if it's 4% of their brain power right now, and then in a month it'll be 10%, and like we'll build up to this understanding. Like, let's learn some new things together and let's figure out whether having a new set of prior knowledge changes the way that you think about that basic question of practical application Be- because otherwise Nick I'm sure you have noticed this in your life the way that we were all taught to think about voice acoustics us oldsters was was firmly rooted in literature that only looked at nineteenth century operatic singing and typically operatic singing for for amab uh, tenor baritone bass voice types right and and you're
0: saying that singing outside of operatic tenor singing matters? I mean, just, I'm just
2: uh, I'm. just saying. I'm very th-
0: confused about this I'm, whole conversation now. Maybe Nicholas, I shouldn't have had you Nicholas, on the podcast. The, the I, these two ladies are... behind me are like getting ready to stab me in the back. Uh, I, I'm just
2: saying The, youth, I'm kidding, the like him. the youth's like a wide variety of sounds and we should not give them a model that makes it difficult for them to understand those. And we should not push simplifications that worked for us Because we only make models for music we care about, like there are all sorts of sounds the human voice can make that nobody presents academically, right? Yeah, I mean we're not.
0: Yeah, we're not looking at we're not looking at overtone singing right now. We're not looking at other kinds of throat singing right now. We we don't have a
2: way from a register perspective. We don't have a way to talk about really low pitched breathy phonation because nobody does it. Right. Right. It's like that's not a register. You can have high pitched breathy phonation or high pitched clear phonation, but nobody is like. Well, Nick, this is my like this is my chest register. Like I don't like we don't even have words to describe that. Um, and so I would just encourage everybody that it is possible that the model you learned and the logical conclusions that extended from that model is profoundly limited. And gaining a little bit more information will make it obvious what the practical applications are. But you're gonna have to do the same amount of work you did to learn the harmonic theory of voice production. You're gonna have to do that work. Or not at all. Like, none of it matters, right? Who cares? But but if, if you're going to confront the question of whether this is helpful or not, you're going to put a little bit of legwork into it. And hopefully this essay will, will be the roadmap for people to do that work.
0: Well, good luck with its publication. Um, Ian, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for teaching Liz's class today. Um, uh, a plus. <laughs> um, <we've got laughs> um, but, uh, Vocal Fan, before we are out, um, we've got a great lineup. I just want to share a little bit really quickly. Yeah, if you've made it this far, in the episode. Coming up next week, we are gonna have Josh on to talk about Spectral Moments. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 27th, Dana Zenobi is coming in to talk about using Voce Vista in Diction class. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on February 3rd, we will have someone um, called Ingo Tietza <laughs>
2: with, um, with- Ask him if the vocal tract is a sound source. Along
0: <laughs> with Lynn Maxfield and Brian Manternach to talk about at vocal- e- Summer, vo- SBI, summer I Vocology yeah, Institute.
1: <laughs> that, that's, so we're recording with them then, remember 200? Oh, we're going to
0: release it, sorry. Actually, that's going to release on February 10th. Yeah. Uh, on February 3rd, we're going to actually re- record and release our... Two hundredth episode, Vocal Fam. Da, 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 da.
1: Um,
0: uh, then on, then um, going after them, we have Theodora, one of uh, Nesterova, one of um, yes. Ian's former graduate students, now at McGill, doing an interdisciplinary PhD, doing some awesome work on perception of vibrato. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, somewhere in there, after that, we're gonna review Quantum Mania.
1: That's true. Yeah, that's
0: the girl we're gonna say that. Um, and that will basically lead us up to spring break. Um, so it's going to be a crazy front end of the spring here. Yeah, it is. Um, and we are, uh, it's really looking our f- lineup. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's really absolutely wonderful. Um, and I know that at some point, uh, our friends who are on the faculty of the, uh, Nats, uh, summer voice pedagogy Institute or whatever yeah. exactly it's called, wanted to come on and do an episode about that as well. Um, uh, cool. and we'll see if we can get that scheduled. Yeah, it actually yeah. turns out that getting Lynn Helding and Alan Henderson in the same place at the same time is just about the most difficult thing on earth. Yeah. We've um, busy lives, and uh, so anyway, but we are excited, and I just want to put a plug in, um, for our uh, over the break watching vocal fam. If you have not watched Severance, your lives are, I don't know what you're doing with your lives. This is the best TV I've seen sp- at, I can solidly say, since Breaking Bad ended. Wow, um. And uh, if you have not watched Severance on Apple TV Plus, it is worth the subscription to Apple TV Plus. Wow. Not that Ted Lasso is also not awesome. Yeah,
1: we've finally begun.
0: But um, Severance is worth, if 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 Perna could make a TV show in his aesthetic, it would be Severance.
2: Cool.
0: Everything about the sound production of it, the music, the the set pieces, That's a television show I would make.
2: Can I say too? Like, I I agree. Apple Apple TV Plus is fantastic. I mean, even the first slew of shows they put out. So you said Ted Lasso, but the morning show was, jeez, Louise was great. So well done. Super intense. Greyhound. If you're into like World War Two fighting movies, Greyhound with Tom Hanks' vehicle came out right away, and it's just brutal and intense and and visceral and the thing that i'm it's just blowing my mind about apple tv and this is not true of any of the other streaming services there's a consistent visual aesthetic show to show like i don't know how they're doing this but there i don't know if it's the frame rate they're shooting at or there's like lighting philosophies that are consistent but it's like every every show i feel like i know when something is an apple tv show it's the weirdest thing Hmm. i don't know if you've noticed that
0: I mean, the only two thing, three things that we've watched are Severance, Ted Lasso, and Spirited. So.
2: Mm. Slow Horses is supposed to be amazing. I've yes, seen I've that. heard good things about Slow A lot of Horses people have as well. told me about
0: that. Yeah. So, anyway, oh, and, and last thing to, for today big vocal fry congratulations to Angela Bassett for winning the Golden Globe oh, yeah. for Best Supporting Actress for none other than her performance as Queen Ramonda in Wakanda Forever it nice. is the first major acting award for the MCU and if, if she does not get an Oscar nomination um, it will be a crime and oh. I bet she doesn't um, so you heard it here first that the Academy will rob them of that acting nomination.
2: Why do I feel like we're going to be in a deposition about this later? You heard it here first, Vocal Fam. You heard it here first. <laughs> Threats were levied, um, um, but
0: if the academy would like me to join the academy <laughs> as an official <laughs> member and reviewer, anyway. All right, Vocal Fam. Thank
2: you, Ian, Sarah. What you have for breakfast? Oh,
1: uh, Greek yogurt and some granola. So It was a boring morning. Perfect, yeah. Sarah.
2: I, in your honor this morning, I had yogurt and granola.
1: Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, like it's good, right? I it's thought good.
2: about the muffin, and I was like, nope. Nope, no, it's been
1: it. a while. It's been a while since I had a muffin for breakfast, and I'm sad. Honestly, I'm sadder for it. But <sighs> these are
2: the hard times. Um, <laughs> embodied music lab friends, please come check it out. Yes. Sign up on my mailing list. Um, we're gonna be rolling out some like professional development courses over the next couple months as well. So I need to sign very
0: up for cool. your mailing list. I'm not on your mailing list. Come join the mailing list. Uh, I need to sign up for your mailing list. Okay, very good. All right, Vocal Fam, that's it. We're out. Peace. Bye. Bye.